Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. But as soon as the stories started sharing about their personal stories, you could see the brain activity in the waves matching. And so what they started realizing is the amygdala, right, the, the nuclei, almond shape, triggers emotional responses from our behavior, our emotions, and that is dictated heavily by storytelling. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best Most people are afraid of what others might think or say if they showed up as their true authentic selves, especially in a business context. And that's why so many of us are terrified of sharing our story authentically in public and and struggle to make a lasting impact when introducing ourselves. But if I could tell you that you could effortlessly enroll and engage your audience every time you did so, be it work, on stage, or even on a podcast... To talk about this, I have a good friend of mine on the pod today, Mark LaRust. He was previously country manager of the Movember Foundation. He has an award-winning podcast, The Unconventionalists, and has an inspiring TEDx talk. Mark is on a mission to eradicate career misery in the workplace and for the next generation of leaders by helping organizations and those who lead them clarify their purpose to better lead and inspire their people and share their story more powerfully so the world listens. His new book, Glow in the Dark, is a guide to learn how to raise your profile and impact the world with your story. And this might sound a little bit contrived, but it will become clear on the podcast. I I myself am a bit of a skeptic when it comes to words like being your true authentic self. What does it actually mean? And I learned a lot from Mark. We talk about the need to answer the questions honestly, such as, am I enough? Do I love myself? Am I lovable? Even the bravery to ask those questions. And these are questions that CEOs and gold medal winning athletes still grapple with despite their perceived successes. We discuss a three-step framework for identifying your story and purpose and how we can turn shame into service. I highly recommend you check out Glow in the Dark. It's in all good bookshops and online, plus the website, glowinthedark.com. And whilst you're there, you can also subscribe to the Doctor's Kitchen newsletter for free every week. I will show you a recipe, something to eat, something to listen to, something to read. A lot of people are absolutely loving it. Remember, you can also watch this podcast on YouTube too. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mark, first of all, I just want to say thank you because I think I was on your podcast many years ago, The Unconventionalist. And uh, I'm pretty sure that was like the, if not one of the first pods I'd ever done. And like really? the way you just, yeah, honestly, you, you, the way you just showed up, you whacked out these microphones, <laughs> you know, the camera set up. It was here. In, it was literally in this living room right here. <laughs> the couch is actually where I was standing here, but, but and I've changed it because uh, I've got the kitchen bar in here and stuff. But yeah, that was literally the first pod. And that was like the first time I think pods came on my radar. I started mm. listening to them. Yours was probably one of the first that I started listening to. And um, and since doing my own podcast, it sort of like opened up my world to mm. the breadth of incredible people there are out there. Um, yeah. And I, I guess, you know, that's what we're going to be talking about today, about how everyone has a story and uh, the, there's so much we can do to connect better with other people. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I thought I'd just start with a thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And trust me, it's an honor to be here on your podcast. And yeah, I remember it was a great conversation. I appreciated your candid honesty. And I know we had some chats offline and look, I've appreciated the friendship that we've grown over the years and, and just thank you for having me. No, no, of course, man. So the, let's get started. Why don't we introduce uh, you to the audience who perhaps haven't come across your work? You know, you're slightly different to the, the regular guests that we have here in the doctor's kitchen, but I think it's important nonetheless. And I think you've got an awesome story to tell as well. So uh, yeah, well, Thanks. take it away. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so my name's Mark LaRouste. It's it's unpronounceable because my dad's French and nobody's perfect. So don't blame me for that. But it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was born and raised in France. I think probably a part of the story that's relevant is, you know, I, I grew up in, in the 80s in France and I'm, I'm a dyslexic kid. And if I'd been diagnosed back then, or if I'd been born 10 years later, I would have probably been severely medicated on ADD or some stuff like that. I was a hyperactive kid. So I, I struggled at school. And I was bullied, which is actually, an in, well, not an interesting, but it's, it's an unusual situation where I was bullied, not by my peers, but by my teachers, because I couldn't spell. I really struggled to spell and read out loud and do maths. And that didn't fit very well in like the archaic French educational system. And so I just had this voice in the back of me, which is delusional at, at best, but actually super helpful, which was, you're going to get through this. And one day, you know, you'll live to see better days. And I was held back a year, then eventually I was kicked out of conventional school. And I was just so determined. I, I still managed to go to university and, 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 and had a bit of a weird random career. But the reason why I bring that up is I think from a young age, I, I understood what it felt to feel misunderstood and to feel like I didn't have a voice or I didn't fit in, even though I felt like this didn't feel normal, if that makes sense. Um, and, and fast forward to today, it's a lot of the work that I do is I kind of wear two hats. On one side, I work with entrepreneurs and business leaders to try and impact the world with their message and their story. And on the other side, I go and work with companies who are trying to change dramatically their culture for the better. 
who are trying to infuse a sense of meaning of purpose within the organization, but more than that, a sense of belonging where people feel like they can bring their true authentic self, whatever that means with the challenge that come with that. And I think I, I bridge the worlds of, of being an employee and, and being a leader because I've been on both sides. Um, and I try and bring a bit of compassion and a bit of humor to this often difficult topic of, you know, 86% of employees worldwide feel disengaged at work. And, and I guess one of the missions that I'm on as well is to eradicate career misery in the workplace. 86%. Yeah, that's the Gallup study that came out and basically found that across the world, I think it was like 135 countries studied. Um, yeah, 86% of employees feel emotionally disengaged from the work they do. Um, you know, in the time of recording, there's this great resignation that we're hearing about, right, since post-COVID. And it's, it's something that I just feel isn't right. You know, and I've been in situations, so I've, I spent my career, I spent about 10 years in the corporate world and the nonprofit world. So for your listeners who might be aware, it's November season at the time of recording this podcast. Um, and I was country manager there for, for four years and I helped raise 2.8 million euros for men's health and got 110,000 people sign up and all that stuff. But what was amazing to see was all I had was, you know, a little backpack, a questionable mustache and a story. And that's all I had. And, and I was basically asked like, go to Europe and try and launch the foundation in a few European countries. And, and there used to be this joke. These, my nickname was Rusty at November. Not a lot of people know this, but my nickname was Rusty. And they used to call it the Rusty Effect. And it was when I used to go into market, like I used to go and travel across Belgium, Spain, France, and Switzerland. And like numbers of registrations would go up. And the only reason that happened is because I would just try and talk to anyone and everyone I could. And I would share the story of November. And then I would link my personal story to why raising awareness about mental health and men's health was important to me. Um, and that was, I think the plant, the seed that was planted around this idea of we've all got a story and, and when we can connect the stories of our past to why we do what we do, it's a really powerful combination. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, that, that's uh, in incredible. And, and the numbers are still like flabbergasting. I mean, we, we've spoken on the podcast actually um, with, with a couple of people uh, about this topic. Uh, one was Stephen McGregor, who is, um, you probably come across his work, he's written a fantastic book very recently called The Daily Reset, and he talks about workplace well-being, workplace wellness. And I think that emotional engagement with what you do on a daily basis is super critical uh, to your overall well-being. Um, because if you feel that disconnected to something that we spend 70 to 80% of our lives doing, it's no wonder that, you know, people lack purpose and people lack the sort of the happy. I mean, I, I always sort of um, regard myself and a lot of my friends who are other entrepreneurs like yourself as lucky, not because we get to have some of the perks of, you know, running your own business, doing it on your own time, even though we probably work more than your, your traditional hours. But we're we're lucky and privileged because we have an understanding or an inkling of, we know what we want and we can go out and achieve that and work towards that goal. And I think a lot of people will be in corporate jobs, but other jobs as well, not really having that sort of connection with purpose. And it's, I, I think it's a critical piece to, you know, well, that the ikigai, it's the, uh, that, that traditional sort of idea of, of purpose connection and, um, and, and, and it's hard mm. 100% and it's hard and, you know, for those who love a good TEDx talk, you know, go and check it out. I gave a TEDx talk in 2017 that's done quite well, but the, 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 the foundation of it was this idea that 
you know, people think that they're going to quit their jobs and start their business and they're going to be happy. But the, the, the figures are, are, are horrific. When you actually look, I think Dr. Freeman, uh, one of the uh, Californian, you know, researchers that looked into the, one of the first to look at the correlation between mental health and, and entrepreneurs basically found like this staggering facts that you're, you're like three times more likely to have depression and all these kind of mental health issues as a result of being an entrepreneur. So why are so many people still driven to this idea, even though like 90% chance of failing, right? And and kind of what I found was it's not so much starting the business that we're looking for. It's what we think starting a business will bring us that we're, we're, that we're looking for. And and it's that feeling and that sense of belonging, of of working towards something that feels important, meaningful, and and what I learned through the research from my book in Glow in the Dark is that we we all have a need to feel part of an important narrative, that we feel like we are part of something meaningful and special. What I find fascinating is that I would say the vast majority of us don't see how our stories are interesting. You know, I mean, you've, you've come on the show and you shared your story on my podcast and I've had hundreds of other guests and I'm amazed and shocked at how many people I'd, I'd I'd come off and I'd be like, wow, that's like a really inspiring, powerful story. And they'd be like, really? I don't really see it that way. And I don't know if that's something that you felt, but literally again, I, I got a message from, you know, someone was listening saying, listen to, you know, X episode of like of Vanessa Bella, for example, and said that story was really meaningful and powerful. So I relay that message back to Vanessa, right? And she says, I really still struggle to see. It's crazy. It's, I mean, I'm humbled and grateful, but I struggle to see how, how meaningful or important or valuable the story can be. So yeah, I, my heart goes out to a lot of people. I want to, I just want to say one thing. I was asked the other day, I think it was a cab driver asked me, what keeps you motivated? <laughs> and I said, it's, it's not motivation, it's drive, which is, it's kind of, it's a bit of a difference. I don't know if you can relate to this. It's like motivation for me fluctuates on a day-to-day basis. You know, I can wake up feeling a bit groggy, feel excited. And then, it, but I find that finding something that drives you it can be way more powerful because then it, it's about showing up even when you don't feel like it. Um, and, and when it comes down to, to working, I think, especially in companies and corporates, find something that drives you and, and it doesn't have to be big. I think one of the big issues I see around purpose is this idea that we need to be a world-changing, you know, business-changing kind of mission. No, I think, you know, there's, there's countless examples out there, which I think people, you know, Nancy Duarte is one of them. You know, she decided for a, for a year and a half to, to, to paint 100 paintings, small paintings, so all the people she was grateful for in her life. And then she did an exhibition where she showed all those paintings. It's quite emotional. You could watch like a video of it. But the point was, it's not like this world-changing thing, but it made her feel a sense of fulfillment. It gave her a sense of drive and it, and it enabled her to give back to those she cared about and to show people that, you know, she was appreciative. So a bit of, a bit of food for thought. Yeah, no, that that's epic. I'm definitely going to look that up. Is that like a a video on YouTube or something where you can watch how how yeah, she Yeah, continue the link. It's, yeah, it's it's if you type in Nancy Duarte, I think it's um yeah, on I'll, I'll send you the I'll send you the the link. That's amazing. But because yeah, I'm dyslexic, awesome. by the way, just anybody just listening to this, I'm dyslexic, so I sometimes confuse names. So Nancy Duarte might be someone completely different. I might be thinking about <laughs> right. someone like yeah, yeah. who studies public speaking, <laughs> and she might have a very similar name. So anyone listening to this, don't trust what I say. Just look at the show notes because I'll be able yeah, to back look that at up. the show notes. I'll correct you on the show notes. <laughs> yeah. No worries. But that's a really interesting uh, point you make there about um, entrepreneurs having uh, high rates of depression and what may have motivated them to leave in the first place was a was a was a drive or a searching for happiness in other areas um and and you mentioned this um this is something that i hear about a, a lot um 
you know, being true to your authentic self. And and I think particularly, you know, in our um, character limited social media platforms, it can be banded around a lot, but I, but I, I don't know if people understand the process or have the tools or knowledgeable of the tools to try and figure what that actually means for them. And I, and I wonder, you know, along the arc of your career and your journey, how you've determined that um, and and whether that's in, in flux for you as well, whether the shifts on a on a yearly uh, or hopefully not more regularly than yearly, but, you know, uh, on a on a sort of a, of a on a time period basis for you, does how was that? How was that journey love, for you? I love that question. Yeah. I, the metaphor that came up is like an onion, like layers. I think if if you think of it as a metaphor for people listening to this, think about it as a piano. I think when we're born, most of us have 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 some form of privilege of having our emotional range still pretty much intact. Of, of course, there are different situations where we are unfortunate and on households that don't permit those kind of emotional expressions. I, I don't want to take that for granted, but imagine if you know overall a medium average of us are able to have our emotional expressions being met in terms of if we're happy, we laugh. If we are sad, we cry. If we're frustrated, we let people know if we're angry, we hit like, it's a very wide range of imagine like the 80 you know, plus piano keys on a piano. We can play the full range of emotions as we kids. And then as we grow up, we have education, we have parents, we have uh, relationships, we have friendships, we have heartaches, we have school, business, work, et cetera, et cetera. And, for those listening, my hands are getting smaller and smaller on the piano. And then you get used to playing on this very small range of keys, if that makes sense. So I think one of the ideas, the concept of like, you know, being yourself, being a true authentic self, being your effortless self, all this kind of stuff. I think it's about looking at this and going, how much am I allowing myself to re-express some of that range? You know, how much am I really giving myself permission to dream, to express, to, to feel, to whatever? That, that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect that I found personally is that, and this is going to sound really strange. And again, I talk about this in the book around your story, but it actually takes a lot of effort and energy to hide and to pretend and to be someone else. Now, remember that we are extremely adaptive creatures because we've had to be. I mean, if you look at, you know, the thousands of years of of evolution, one thing that was clear is that we had to fit in. Right. Because if you didn't, if you had like an opinion that was contrary to like the common beliefs of your peers and groups and tribe, you were kicked out. And if you were kicked out, the chance of survival were very slim and forget about mating and reproducing yourself. That's just not going to happen. So it's actually ingrained in us to make sure that we fit in. It, it is absolutely part of a DNA to make sure that we don't stand out, rock the boat or, or potentially fear being rejected. So I want to I want to name that because. If there's one thing I learned in this whole process, that, you know, seven years of hosting my podcast, of writing this book and researching this book, is that a lot of the issue isn't so much information or logic or reason. A lot of it's emotion and psychological. And what I mean by that is we can break down a lot of bunch of tools and tactics on how to be more yourself or how to be more authentic or how to you know manage difficult conversations and all this stuff. But if you don't address the elephant in the room, which is, I'm just really scared of what might happen if people really know who I am. Like the book title of my book originally was going to be, if only you, if, if you knew who I was, or if, uh, if only you knew who I was, but it was taken. Um, and that's because I think fundamentally we are scared 
and, and look, I don't want to get too deep too soon in this podcast, but what I found is that most of the time it comes down to the fundamental question of, am I enough? And do I love myself unconditionally? That's it. And I've worked with CEOs, with MDs, with founders, entrepreneurs, some of the multinationals. It doesn't matter. It always comes back down to those questions. And what I found is that if you can answer those questions of, yeah, I am enough with exactly what I have right now. And I am lovable for who I am. You know, I am darkness and I'm light and both are needed. If you can marry those two, then I feel it's much easier to accept who you are and therefore be more comfortable with the potential of being rejected by others because you've accepted yourself first, if that makes sense. Whereas if you haven't accepted yourself first, you're much more vulnerable to fear the rejection of others because it's a confirmation of what you're already struggling with. I don't know if that makes sense, if, I, if I'm still tracking here, but it, it is something that I find that is at the core of all this because what I'm saying, like I remember giving a talk at this big event and someone said, you know, employees I'm hiring now, they're expecting to show up with blue hair and piercings and we'd like a really corporate and very serious environment and blah, blah, blah. And they want to be themselves, but it doesn't fit. And, and I think this brings an interesting question, which is at what point do we consider bringing ourselves being a hindrance to the business? And, and what are some of the archaic belief systems that we've still bought in, such as, do you have blue heads and you can't do your job? I, I would argue no, right? But it's also about meeting, meeting people where they are. Um, and I could go on a tangent on this for a while, but I just wanted to pause and to make sure that that made sense. You know, this idea of accepting, and it's no easy feat. There's a reason why there's therapy and coaching and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, I'm still on that journey, right? I still, like I literally right in front of me, for people who are not, we can already really see this, I would have bored um, behind my camera and I have, I am darkness and I am light and both are needed. And that's a real journey for me to accept the shadow, to accept the darkness inside of me, the, the fact that I can be selfish, the fact that I can be jealous, the fact that I can be judgmental, all these things that I hate, like I really put judgment on. The more that I've learned to accept those things, the more I've just showed up with myself. And the biggest compliment I get on, on, a, on a regular basis when I talk on stage or when people come up to me is, you're the same. And, and hopefully you, you felt the same, but I'm the same whether I'm on this podcast, whether I'm on a stage, whether I'm writing in my book or you see me in the street or I'm playing with my kids. I'm the same guy. And I think that ultimately is for me one of the biggest tokens of freedom to feel like I can navigate effortlessly between the different yeah. roles of my life. And of course, if I go and speak to my kids' school, I'm not going to swear. Like I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to share certain stories of like certain stories. <laughs> and, and again, that you know, not to plug the book over and over, but it's, I found that one of the big issues people had around understanding what stories are relevant. It, it was actually understanding what was the relevant context in which those stories could be shared. So for example, Uber, I'm sure you've got like a stack of stories, right? Especially in your line of work that you, you've seen over the years and you know how you open up your TED talk is really powerful. And so some of those stories are going to be relevant in certain contexts, but in certain contexts, they won't. And so my goal is to help teach people to say, you can absolutely share your story, no matter how scary that is, no matter how you know, how much shame you have around your story, no matter how much fear you have your story. But I would say not necessarily everywhere, if that makes sense. There are certain environments where you are more prone to, to, to get a safer response than, than you would. And I learned that the hard way. And I can tell you the story if you want at some point. But the idea is, you know, we have open wounds and they're not yet scars. And while they're open wounds, you might be better off to talk to a really intimate friend, someone you really trust, or talk to a professional, a therapist, someone that you know will hold the space without any judgment. Because 
I've heard it from friends, from clients, you know, who went, who've been through sexual abuse, um, who'd been some form of trauma and they've opened up maybe to a family member and it really backfired. And as a result, they kind of shut back like a turtle. And I've had to unpack that working with them around, look, it wasn't that the story was too much to handle. It was the person you shared it with just wasn't the right person to receive it. And so to navigate those conversations, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, there's so much there that I, I want to unpack. I mean, on, on a very personal level, I think the podcast, uh, as my podcast has, has been, uh, and it, an, an, incredible tool of self-expression um that's that's helped me on my journey um and i think there's two fundamental questions i mean you, I, I love like the tldr of of most things right like the too long didn't read like i just want to get down to the point i i think it's my analytical mind it's the fact that i love bullet points it's the fact that i love a plan i like to tick things off like i i think it's probably what one of the the aftermath um, uh, things of, of being a junior doctor where you have like a, a suite of jobs and you have a little tick box and you check them off. Like, I, I just love that. And so having the knowledge of what at least one needs to work towards, obviously personalizing it to them, but really around the two core questions, am I enough and do I love myself? I think these are like, you know, just hacks to happiness and obviously there's going to be a lot of process and it's going to be very very different depending on that person's experiences and their you know their their, their childhood etc and their current environment but i think i think that those are like really really critical questions to ask every or everyone listening to this or watching this to ask themselves yeah and and, and the trick is to not judge yourself if the answer is no i think mm. that's like my message at this point is it's okay you know we, we go through these moments of, you know, sometimes I shatter my kids and I feel like a horrible dad. And if I had to answer, do I love myself? Right. And I know, you know, I'd struggle in that moment, but you know, Dr. Valerie Young, um, who wrote the book, you know, the, the secret thoughts of successful women, it's an odd title for a great book about imposter syndrome. You know, she calls them imposter moments as opposed to you're feeling like, it's like I'm having an imposter moment. And so I think it's like, you're maybe having a wobble moment, but it doesn't mean on the average of like the day of the month of the week that you don't accept yourself. But uh, yeah, 100% those two questions. And I would add a third one, which is, am I lovable? Because that's the result of those two questions. Am I enough? Do I love myself? If the answer is yes, then yeah, I'm lovable. And, and, and I would argue that it's difficult to be in relationship with others truly if, if, if we don't do a little bit of work around those questions. And I know that's challenging and, and tough, but yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you had to learn some of this the hard way. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing perhaps your, your own experiences around this. Okay. So the, the, there's the gazillion examples, but one of them that comes to mind is years, years ago, I was working with someone like a, a coach, right? He wasn't a, a therapist or a registered psychologist. You know, he was just, you know, kind of a life coach gets kind of this, but there's some great life coaches out there, by the way. And I used to be a do life coaching for many years and stuff. So I'm you know, a big fan, but and I felt it was a safe space and, and I kind of opened up about something that I had a lot of shame about, you know, it was back then it was something around my relationship. That was it, that I was just struggling in my relationship. I was struggling with ideations of having affairs and all this kind of stuff. And instead of being met with a, a curiosity and acceptance, which I've since years, years, years later learned through like therapy, it was a really judgmental reaction of kind of like, this is not a way to be as a man. 
who do you think you are? Your partner needs to know these thoughts, you know. And I shut down and I remember having vulnerability hangover the next day, you know, going, I should have never said that. Why did I say that? I was stupid. I was silly. And blaming me. And over the years, I managed to unpack that experience by just realizing, oh, it, it, it just, it triggered something in this person that couldn't be with what I was sharing, but it wasn't necessarily my fault in that sense. And one story I think that really captures that and some, and I kind of share this story towards the end of the book, but so my, my mum has a complicated history and background in terms of her family dynamics. And her whole life when she was a kid, she'd basically been told it was her fault, right? So she carried this shame and this guilt through pretty much her whole life until early adulthood. And she hadn't told anyone. I think I might be, I think she might have told one person, like her best friend slash her cousin. I think it was the only person who knew about the truth, right? And I'm putting air quotes here. Um, she moves in with my dad in France. So she's Welsh, you know, she she's born and raised in Britain, but comes over to France in her early twenties to be with my dad. And and kind of for some reason thinks if I'm gonna be living the rest of my life with this man, I should probably tell him about this story. So she tells my dad this the truth for the first time this story and she's got tremendous guilt and shame and she thinks that he's going to leave her because of this and because i'm incredibly fortunate and just landed a really lucky star i've got a very kind and gentle dad he's the opposite of like the alpha male if you want um he basically looked at her and said you know your mom had no right to tell you those things it's not your fault and she just broke into tears. And as she was telling me the story, and it's in the book, and she allowed me to share the story in the book, she was moved, and she's in her 70s now, right? And I was moved, and, 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 it, and she, it took her 24 years to realize that the story that she had believed deeply, that it was her fault, that she should be ashamed and guilty for everything that happened in terms of her family dynamic, it wasn't her fault. And it just took someone to look at her and said it, that that wasn't right. That shouldn't have happened. And, and I think that's an example of a perfect example of a, of a story well-received, if that makes sense. You know, someone she trusted, she felt comfortable with, and he, and he took the story and, and he held her in the way that she needed. So I'm I, I, forever grateful, you know, for that moment. Um, but I don't know if, I know if that answers that question. So I kind of go off on tantrums, but that's, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. no. No, I mean, I, I love the tangents and, and we love tangents on, on, on the podcast. And I think, you know, I, I wonder how many people, uh, even at a subconscious level, are holding onto judgments about themselves without realizing mm. that can manifest in a variety of different ways. I mean, there's a clear relationship between those ill thoughts and uh, physical disease um, as well mm. as uh, mental health issues. So, you know, it, it's... I, I think these are really important topics to discuss. And I think having strategies to at least try and discover them. And also, I think to your point about being vulnerable, but in the context of uh, ensuring that the person you're being vulnerable with is either trained or is accepting or is generally the right person to be vulnerable in front of because it can backfire. Yeah. Yeah, that you tr absolutely you, you you trust and look at and my message to people is that you might not get always get it right and that's okay and it's scary right I mean 
I would argue that uh, you'd be hard to find someone listening to this or even out in the planet that doesn't have some story that they wrestle with, a story that they wish nobody knew, a story that they wish they could go back and change, a story that they feel has impacted them in some way. Like we all hold these stories. And what I've learned over and over and over again through my work and through the podcast is that more often than none, these stories that we're so deeply ashamed of and afraid of are, are the most powerful tools of connection that we have you know dax shepherd's great example of this you know armchair expert host and american producer and actor i love his podcast you know he's, he's been in uh, in aa for many years and he talks a lot about the power benefits of you know the 12 steps but he he talks about you go into these aa meetings and people say some stuff that you should really like want to hate them you know and judge them but because they own them as like a flaw and they're desperately trying to heal and recover from you can't help but find empathy mm. and, 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 and try and, and find compassion towards it, right? And so my message to anybody listening to this is first, have a little bit of compassion and empathy towards yourself because we mess up. We do things we're not proud of. We do things we wish we could do differently. Like we all have that in common. I think a, a universal human experience is that we all have things we've gone through that we wish or regret having gone through. Um, and, and I find that often when, when you like struggle to connect with someone, whether that's a leader, whether that's a team member, a friend, a colleague, or what have you, is that you don't feel that there's a level of vulnerability or authenticity that you can connect to. Um, you know, I, had, I have this example I talked about in the book. Ash, I started working with his client and he was, you know, by all means, pretty successful like he was you know he competed in team gb as a kid he got like a gold disc as like a choir boy he's been um you know in as as an, like an army leader and in, in tours in afghan and so forth and being decorated by the queen blah 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 and i was listening to this as like this is all superhuman stuff it doesn't it doesn't feel relatable but actually when i dug deeper into his background i found out that his dad had substance abuse and and had an alcohol problem and was violent around the house. And so he often had to step in front of his mom and his sister to protect them. And I was like, oh my, oh my gosh, that, have you ever shared that? So he's like, no, no way. And I was like, but that's what explains why you do what you do today. That's why you're, you're a leader of women and men. And, you know, that's why you want to go into companies and help them treat each other better. Because as a kid, you had to step up. And it took him a year for that to marinate, eventually got on a podcast and share the story and wrote back to me and said, you'll, you'll, you'll be proud and happy to hear that I finally did. And it's, you know, and then the rest is history, but we all carry those. Yeah. 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 Well, let, let's switch gears a bit and talk about uh, glow in the dark a bit more about the book and, you know, f finding those stories that you are willing to share um, and, and, you know, really spell out your purpose and, and meaning. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated with this idea of how, I mean, this is the reason why TED Talks are so popular, right? Because we naturally align emotionally and connect with people better through the medium of stories. And I was I was uh, doing a bit of research around Rene Girard, who I've only just come across over the last uh, six, 12 months, something like that, who is the um, the French uh, philosopher who came up with the uh, the mimetic theory and um and found this through looking through shakespeare and these uh, incredible um uh, novelists and, and found this common theory of like you know well 
that the the main characters, the protagonists in most stories, are looking up to someone from the past, and they are essentially in their shadow, and they're trying to overcome the shadow or build on what they are modeling. Um, and so his theory is like, well, we're basically all just sort of copying each other. We're sort of like, you know, miming the actions and sort of the achievements of other people. Um, and I, I and 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 I, I just think that the way in which we do that is by by telling stories and and inspiring each other. So I, I wonder if you could give us sort of like a, the, the crux of the of the book and and how people sort of can can find their their confidence because I, I guess this is a, a lot to do with you know having the um the ability and 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 nurturing that the energy to to be uh, confident enough to to tell your story. Yeah, and it's and it's scary. Like I'm just just going to name that straight away. I'm not, I'm not pretending like what I'm asking of you is easy. I think it's definitely worth it. You know, I used to say that the Trojan horse of my book was healing to a friend of mine, Emily Gindelsberger, who's the author of, you know, please make me love me. Um, and she said, stop making that your Trojan horse. That should be like your central premise and promise of the book. And, and that's, that's my ultimate promise to you. And really, and, and I stand by it, which is, you will not recognize who you've become once you unpack, own, and start sharing your story. Because what happens, it changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way how you feel. It changes the way how you interact with your partner, your, you know, your plants, your pets, your kids, um, your family, your peers, your colleagues. Your, it just, it, it's a ripple effect because the way that you show up when you start accepting who you are means that you're no longer hiding or, or, or dodging or, or playing defense, if that makes sense. Um, again, an example of this is a client, I talk about him as well and, and her in the book, but, um, this is someone who had an early stage career of being a professional poker player <laughs> and, and for whatever reason, just felt really embarrassed by that. And, you know, he's the CEO of an MD of a successful company, you know, multiple, multiple seven figure business and uh, deals in a very serious industry of finance and money, all this stuff. And you just felt like nobody can know about this. And what was interesting is as we would work together and I helped him unpack his story and all this stuff, he started to share his story with anyone and everyone he could. <laughs> so from someone behind the till at the supermarket to his physio, um, to his new employees, like he was just so passionate about explaining to them why he started this company. And, and he came back to me when he was like, Mark, oh my, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe I haven't been doing this sooner. I was sitting at this table and I started talking about poker and they're like, oh my God, we play poker too. And I've been invited to like this really, awesome table and it turns out like you know the minister of this or that you know and, and it's just and this this is why i wrote this book the reason why i'm sharing these kind of stories is i kept on seeing this on a one-to-one -one and i thought this more people need to hear this and and to have both a practical tool because as you said i think your brain will like the book is basically split into two parts just 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 to break it down the first part is i'm trying to convince you on an emotional uh, an intellectual level that stories matter, right? So like, if you look at it from a, almost from like a, um, a corridor level, right? So like the very big thing is like, why do stories matter? Why do we even care about stories? We talk about in the book about, we are actually hardwired to respond and listen to stories. It's, you know, when our larynx started to lengthen and we started cooking food around fires, we started sharing stories and the stories, most of them were about how to survive, how to mate, how to find shelter, how to avoid poison, how to hunt. And so we had to pay attention. If we didn't, we just didn't survive. So they actually did a Princeton study of an MRI where, where they took one person 
who started sharing a story and another person listening and they, and, and they, and they um, duplicated this experience. What they found is that at the start of the experiment, if you look at the MRI scans, the brain activity was completely dissociate and, and not matching. But as soon as the stories started sharing about their personal stories, you could see the brain activity in the waves matching. And so what they started realizing is the amygdala, right? The, the nuclei, almond shape, triggers emotional responses from our behavior, our emotions, and that is dictated heavily by storytelling. We pay attention. You know, I, I share this great social experiment, which is one of my favorite experiments, um, where these two social uh, uh, um, anthropologists took eBay, right? They, they went to a thrift shop and boot sale shop, whoever's listening to what it is, basically like secondhand junk, right? They bought on average for like 80p or like $1.20 these items, okay? And they matched each item with a professional uh, copywriter or storyteller, if you want, who wrote a story. So unfortunately, those of you who are listening won't be able to see this, but Rupi, bear with me, okay? So I am showing you right now uh, a little kind of teddy, right? It looks like this old school mouse with a cape and a little mouse. That's a danger mouse. So if I just told you like, yeah, danger mouse, there you go. (laughs) So, you know, if you look at danger mouse like that, you'd be like, oh, that's probably worth, you know, how much do you think this is worth Uh, as it is? Two, three pounds? Two, three pounds. Cool. What if I told you that actually this particular danger mouse is the danger mouse that my great-grandfather, who was fighting in the Second World War and actually was a massive part of the resistance in France, got caught. And the only possession he had time to get with him when he went to concentration camp was this danger mouse. And he carried it with him in his back pocket and managed to hide it all the way. He gave it to, to, to my grandmother and he said, give this to your grandson one day and tell him that there is nothing that he can't overcome. How much do you think this is worth now? Oh, it's priceless. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. priceless. Right? So, and, and by the way, the, it's a true story about my great-grandfather. It's not true, it's true about this uh, <laughs> mouse. But yeah. the point is, the emotional connection that you just had with the same object just completely changed. Mm. And so that's what they did. They did this at scale. And the, it, it, like the results, I, t- I talk about the stats and stuff in the book, but the results were staggering. I think they sold for like 8,900 pounds worth of items, you know, and... They would then explain to people who bought the items that, you know, they were fictional stories and they give money to charity. But what they wanted to point was stories completely removes rationale. We become emotionally invested. It's why we queue for, you know, Apple products for days in advance. It's why we're ready to spend, you know, a small mortgage on sneakers because they've been limited series. Like all this is part of storytelling. So when we think about, we often do business with people we know, like, and trust right? There was a Google study that called it the zero moment of truth in 2012, which they want to understand why do we click purchase? Why do we click buy on products? It's because there's a certain number of hours and interaction touch points that we need so that we say yes. And what they found is that we buy from people we know, like, and trust. And I don't think anything achieves that faster or better than someone who's willing to own and accept their flaws and who shares it in service of others because there's there's a big i just want to say this right now and maybe you you might agree with me or not and please feel free to disagree with me i think it's a healthy part of the conversation but i think we've there is also this thing about being vulnerable and honest and like you can just spill your guts online and i think that can be great but sometimes it could be like why like what's the point of this is it is it because you're looking for validation because actually to answer the question of am i enough and am i lovable it's the answer is no so please remind me and sometimes we need that don't get me wrong But what I try and advocate in the book is, yes, it's your story, but it's not for you, you know? And and I think that's what helps a lot of people listening to this. If they're stuck in this idea of like, I don't want to be the center of attention. I don't want to make the story about me. 
Well, here's here's the good news. It's it's actually not it's not for you. Yeah, it's about you, but it's not for you. It's for someone who somewhere woke up this morning needing to hear your story to not feel alone. Because your story can change the trajectory of their life. It really can. And the best tip I have around that is this this obsession and this fear that we have of I don't want to be in the spotlight. You know, even you would be me at the start. I wonder maybe when you started off, like I'm really passionate about this idea of like the doctor's kitchen and educating and empowering people to make better choices through their health, through their plates. But I don't want to put my face out there. Like, I don't want to be like, look at me, 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 me. Well, what I found is the secret is to see yourself not as having to be in the spotlight, but becoming the spotlight. And so by shining a light on a message, on a cause, on a problem, on an issue that you really feel passionate about. Like I remember when we talked, one of the things I was really fascinated about Years ago was this idea that you wanted to be able to train medical professionals across the country to feel more empowered. And I've seen what you've done now with like hospital lunches and it's just like stratospherical stuff, right? But it's, you became the vehicle for a message. And I truly believe that if you started off on Instagram and saying, look how great I am, look how amazing I am, look how great my porridge looks like. Like, yeah, you would have got a few likes and followers, but you would have never got the impact and success that you've had today. I think because you continuously are the vehicle for this message that you believe in, people root for you. People want to follow you. People want to champion your mission. And that's what I want people to understand is that your story becomes a bigger message, right? Like your story is the beginning. But once you identify what the message of your story is, and I give a three-step framework in the book, you can become almost unstoppable because you no longer fear the repercussion of of what people might say, because it doesn't matter. There's this great quote, I, again, because I'm dyslexic, I've mixed things up, but um, that basically says you could be the, you know, the juiciest, ripest peach in the world, people still will have a problem with peaches, right? And I think if you have, if you figure that thing out, which is what do I want to become the vehicle for? What do I want to become the spotlight for? Everything falls. And I'll finish with this one example on that point, Greta Thunberg, right? Most people know who Greta is by now. And you might have an opinion. You might, you know, regardless of that, bear with me for a second. When she was 13, 14, right, and she started striking out to school on Fridays for climate change, she really believed that it was her responsibility to do this because no one, she felt like no one was doing it and she had to raise awareness about our oh, house is burning. Then suddenly the local media picks it up. Then the Guardian picks it up. International press starts picking it up. She starts getting invited to go and give a TEDx talk. She goes to the UN. She then gets a book deal with Penguin. She gets a documentary. She has a partnership with Rudy DiCaprio. Blah, blah, blah. Millions of Instagram. That happened because she shone a light on something that was important, not because she made it all about her. You can argue about whatever you want. I truly believe that I don't think she was seeking attention when she started this. Not for herself. She was seeking attention for the cause. And I think that's what your story can really unleash. Yeah. Uh, dude, there's, there's so much I want to uh, unpack there again. Um, and I, lo- I love tangents. These, these are brilliant. Uh, I, I actually have quite a lot of respect for, for people like Greta. And I agree. I don't think she did it for herself. I think she's really, you know, shining a spotlight on what needs to be shown on. And um, it's fu- funny uh, talking about my own story. So I actually took years to to get in front of a camera. There's some, there's some uh, videos from like 20, I started the doctor's kitchen like 2015. There's some videos from like 2012 that will never see the light of day. It was just like me practicing in the kitchen. I had a buddy of mine, the only person that I confided in that, you know, I wanted to start this thing because I was running late in clinic the whole time, like explaining recipes to people and I just needed to share it and get it out there and stuff. So it took me like a good four or five years 
before I even mustered the confidence to to get in front of the uh, the, the camera. And I think, yeah, you're right. Like the, um, having that confidence to talk about my story, my frustrations with the medical system, sort of putting my head above the parapet, uh, so to speak. Um, it was scary and it's still scary uh, to be honest. Even today, like, you know, after doing this and building the brand and all the rest of it, it's still uncomfortable to to get out there and talk about these things so openly. But because I, I, I have the the sort of the cause and the mission behind it is kind of what propels me forward. And, and the other thing to, to your point about uh, particularly the use of vulnerability, even the words vulnerability online, I feel sometimes in a micro and macro environment, they can be almost weaponized for the purposes of, um, you know, selfish gain. So, you know, on a micro level, you have certain influences. Uh, I, I don't know, like, I think, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are some genuine people out there, but like crying online and, you know, having the camera in front of them and like, say, I'm, I'm feeling vulnerable. Yes, I, I, I get it. Sometimes it is really important because that can certainly make certain people feel better. But the sort of skeptical side of me is like, okay, we, we, this this doesn't necessarily mean that this is helpful for everyone. And actually, you can spot when people are gaining. It's almost like on a macro level, greenwashing. It's kind of like, you know, when H&M says, oh, we're doing this amazing stuff over here and look how great we are. But at the end of the day, you, you know, you're making masses of profits on the other side uh, whilst pushing out this story that makes you look better on this side whereas that's a fraction of actually you know your, your intention and everything so you know I, I just want to put that out there because i think it's important to to recognize that people are abusing this in certain domains if you see what i mean yeah and, and look it's and, it, and and it's going to happen it's a pendulum right we always go through some sort of shift and change what i will say is don't let that if you're listening because i 100 agree with you by the way and if if you are also recognize that, don't let that get in the way of you feeling like I don't want to be associated to those people. By me opening up online, I will then be seen as one of those because it's different, right? So there's like this, if you look at there's some amazing resources on like how to how to unpack and share your story. And like one of the most famous ones is the 12 step process of Joseph Campbell, you know, who wrote the, you know, the uh, hero of the um, thousand faces. Uh, and uh who basically found that there was a monomyth across all different cultures, religion throughout history, and that you could recognize all the, the protagonists basically went through the same uh, system. And whether that's Alice in Wonderland or the Matrix or, or Game of Thrones or whatever. So they're all great, but they're often not very practical or easy to implement, especially in a business context or professional setting, right? So one of the things that I teach in the book is to go, okay, so if you break so the first, by the way, if you want like a really practical tip for people listening, the first exercise I, I get people to do is to just map out your stories, both professional and personal throughout your whole life. You take a big piece of paper, A3, A4, whatever you get, put a bit of music on, hopefully with no lyrics on, that's my advice. And then you just map out like from birth to date, what are some of the big moments that shaped you in some way or form, good and bad, right? So maybe your parents... Uh, separated maybe you had to move countries maybe you went through some really traumatic experience maybe you won a trophy maybe you got to promote whatever it is you just write all those stories out right that's effectively what i would call like your story bank you kind of you know that also call it the river your river of life so you map out all those stories that can be overwhelming right you go oh what do i do all this mark that's great I've, you know i run a soccer competition or a football tournament when i was like six how's that relevant now this is where people go wrong most people are too close to their own stories so there's, there's like these, I think nine or 10 blockers I talk about in my story about what gets in the way of sharing a story. One of them is I don't 
see how my story is important or how my story matters. So the metaphor I use is, so Rupi, what, ask, what's your favorite movie? Like if you had to go back right now and rewatch a film, that you know, um, what's one of your favorite films? That's a really good question. I get asked this a lot. Um, uh, I'm going to panic now. Uh, well, I mean, well, pick, pick, don't, don't overthink it. There's one that came up to mind that you probably judge as like, I can't say that out loud, but what, is there a film that came up that you're just thinking? Cause even if it's not the right one, it's recently I'm... been Halloween and one of my favorite horror movies of all time okay. is Saw. I freaking love Saw. It's amazing. Saw. Yeah. The first one. <laughs> yeah. First one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. Got you. So, so how many times would you say, okay, so first of all, the first time you saw Saw, what was it about Saw that was so special for you? Like, scared what were me. the feelings I, that you I, felt? I was, was at, I was at med you? school. Uh, I was living in the basement of this uh, house and it, I'm a rational human being, right? And I, I was scared to go down into the basement after <laughs> watching this movie. <laughs> yeah. So it, so it had an feel. emotional, like, I had a I'm real strong that, emotional connection, yeah. like, you know, a, a yeah. reaction to this And movie. a lingering one. A lingering, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just like in the moment. It's like, it, 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 yeah, it had an inception moment, yeah. right? Like you were going around, creeping around like, oh, cool. So how many times would you say you've seen Saw since? Uh, three times, I think. Three times, cool. So imagine if I had to sit you down and I told you, right, Rupi, for the next 10 days, I want you to sit down. You're going to watch this film 10 times back to back. How do you think you'd feel after the 10th time? Oh, probably pretty, I mean, very bored, emotionless. I probably wouldn't feel scared anymore. <laughs> sure. Now imagine if I had to sit you down and you had to watch 100, maybe even 1,000 times back to back. How do you think you feel about your story then? Oh, pretty, pretty numb. Yeah. So that is how we are all with our own stories. Mm. We are with our stories on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's so just boring to us that we don't see the value of it. But what you need to understand is that when you share your story for the first time, it will be that sore for the first time, if that makes sense. So one of the yeah. first things I tell people is like, take a meta view, take a helicopter view of your story and realize that you've been in the editing suite for way too long. You've been looking at this story over and over again for whatever since it's happened. So for you, it's boring, it's irrelevant, it's not interesting. But what you will find is that when you start sharing your story with someone else, someone might be like, wow, that's amazing. And you're like, really? And look, yeah. I've had people come on my show from their road, you know, across the Atlantic on their own with no training whatsoever, right? Beat some world record. And they're just like, yeah, but anyone could do that, you know? And, and <laughs> but we all are, we all victims of this. We all are. And look, you don't have to have this life changing dramatic event for your story to be relevant. But the point is, the reason why I'm saying this is that I want people to understand that you might not be the best judge of your own story. Because like the example, if you think about your favorite film, if you saw it a hundred times, you'd... so imagine if you were the producer and you watched the saw a hundred times, like this is boring and it didn't release it with the world. Imagine all the rupees of the world out there who would have missed out on that experience. And that's what I'm telling people. Like you don't know yet just how far and wide your story can impact. But if you focus on just changing one person's life who needs to hear it, to not feel alone, that's your job's done. And I know that that can feel like, yeah, great, Mark, but that's just, hey, that's one person who might go and share it to one person and you have a ripple effect, right? So to come back to the practical tool, you've got the river of life. By the way, did that make sense, the example of the story? That made that total man? sense. I, th that's such a cool exercise to do. And actually that realization that because you sit with your story so much, it blunts the effect. It's almost like, you know, the hedonic adaptation. Once you get used to having this, 
beautiful iPhone that is as powerful as your computer, you know, 10 times over when you were a kid, you kind of just get used to it. It's like, oh yeah, it's just my, just my iPhone. Yeah. It's a, an iPhone By, by the way, magic. the technology in this puts someone on the planet, on the moon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The same technology, right? <laughs> that is in here, puts someone on the moon peeps. Like, no, but that, that's, but that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so if you come back to this idea and I'm just really going quickly through some of the processes I have to share in the book, but so you've mapped out all your stories and you go, great, Mark. Now what? So then I go, look, imagine if I told you that you may not yet see what are some of the most powerful gems that you have in your stories. So anything's game, right? In, in your metaphor, if you want to go and do some amazing cooking and you want to teach your audience like how to make the most of what you got, you've probably got to go through your pantry. You've probably got to go through like what ingredients do you have? You can only do that when you map them all out, right? Like you've probably got some really neatly structured in your, in your kitchen around like the spices and stuff. But you need to see all the spices so that you know which ones you can use. You need to see how much, you know, grains or legumes or beans you've got in your storage. It's the same thing. Like the metaphor I use again around this is my my nephew, Liam, and my niece, Emma, right? When they were little, they used to play with this pile of Legos that my brother used, and I used to play 40 years ago. Um, and it's this really old denim bag that one of my mum's mates built with like some red string so that when you pull it up, it kind of looks like a Santa bag. And then they would put it on the floor. We would just play for like hours and build all these different Lego structures and pieces. Of like, honestly, I don't even know if it's Lego stuff, but there were pieces of Lego and all this stuff. But the point was, in order for us to see what we could build, we had to put everything on the floor. So Marie Kondo, right? Like her principles of of tidying up is you need to have all your your socks and, and boxer shorts in front of you and all your big pens in one place so you could really go through them. It's the same thing with your story. Like if you hold back and when you do this process, a really important part is no one's going to see this apart from you, no one. So you can put everything and anything you want on this, knowing that you will, I'm not asking you to share any of this because by the way, spoiler alert. Yeah. I'm a big believer that if you share your story, you can change your life and transform your business and and impact the world, this stuff, but you don't have to, because it will actually change the way you feel already and how you show up will change and have an impact. Right. But once you've got that, once you've got all the pieces on the floor, I will say, just pick one for the sense of this exercise right now that we're doing your audience, just pick a story, right? So uh, maybe for you, it was this idea of Saw, right? We can go with the idea of the story of Saw. Like how is Saw going to be relevant to the doctor's kitchen today, right? Well, we're going to work with that in a second. We're going to come up with something. So the way that you make it helpful is that you take that story. So you go, I don't know. what. Do you remember what year it was? Uh, what year this was that you saw I can't remember. Okay, 2004. So it's 2004. I'm sitting in my basement. My ears are plugged into my laptop and I'm watching this film. Saw that. My friend's been bugging me to watch. And he said, you've got to watch it on your own. And I'm like, that sounds weird, <laughs> but I'm watching it. And then you say, then you, they might talk about like, then the film, the credits roll, rolling in and I'm shocked and I'm stunned, you know. But here's what's really scary. I'm starting to freak out. You know, I'm a rational person. I'm a doctor. I'm a junior doctor. I know that this is all that. It's not rational but I'm sure that there's a guy with a mask behind my kitchen cupboard and I'm not going down that basement, right? So you've kind of took us into the story. You've made us a little bit feel and here's, this is where most people go wrong, especially when we talked about like, I'm crying online and you know trying to seek some attention through vulnerability, which can be helpful and sometimes not. The, the really important part is the message. Why is that relevant? What did you learn? What can you teach? What can you give as a result? So I'm going to make something up on the spot, right? But if it was for you, it's like, well, I realized that this boogeyman, this thing that we're scared of, we all have that even today. And, and that can actually, doesn't have to look like with a mask. It can look like I'm an incompetent chef. 
I'm so scared of opening that cupboard because what if I realize that I don't know how to cook for my family? You know, and so then you could land that message that way. I just, it, it made no sense what I just said, but the idea is you land a message. And if you can break down your stories by basically going, you know, uh, it's called context. So take me what's going on, content, share with me what's happened, and then conclusion. What is it that you learn from it? You know, it, or you can say it's take me, tell me, teach me. If you can break your stories that way, I've seen it with clients, I've seen it in workshops, I've seen it countless times it's amazing because then you get a really simple structure you kind of just go you know and I actually share in the book like a bunch of podcast guests and friends i show you the formula in action and and you'd be amazed now that i told you this three-step formula how much you'll recognize it in people who like show up right and and especially like thought leaders space right who are like authors and influencers whatever when you call us they use a very similar method and, and it's just a very simple one that everybody listening can practice with. And what I will finish off with this is a, a bit, that particular point is pick a story that right now feels okay, not too scary, but maybe not too safe either. Break it down, use that methodology, and then try and share it with someone, someone you trust, someone, someone, someone you might feel like the likelihood of it backlashing is pretty minimal and start seeing what happens. And what I want more than anything, and this is what I've seen with clients, what I've seen with beta readers of the book who told me all this is that they were amazed and shocked at what came back. What they thought was going to be backlash and rejection and hatred and trolling and fill in the blank, what they got is connection and love and acceptance. And that's, I, I don't, I, I can't think of a, a bigger wish I have for audience members and this people listening or watching to this is this idea that, oh, maybe I am enough. <laughs> maybe it's okay that I'm not perfect. And maybe there is connection through, through the story. And, you know, I said to you that the original title was going to be, if only you knew me, then the second title I wanted was uh, from shame to service, but uh, it hasn't got a mainstream appeal. <laughs> so, uh. so I went for something a little bit different, but that's, that's what it is, right? Think about it. Think about everybody listening to this. If they could go from shame to service in some, in some shape, way or form, which is focusing on myself, I'm bad or I've done bad things or I'm not good enough. And all the focus and attentions on myself to suddenly going, how can I help? How can I serve? What can I do? And, and that, that's like a bit of a pet dream of mine. That three-step framework, I, I wish I did that last week. That, that I, I went to Norfolk on my own. Uh, I, I rented a, a cabin in the woods. No mobile, no Wi-Fi, no, none of that stuff. Like no reading material, no music, no podcast, nothing. It was literally just me. I had my dog with me, um, and uh, I had some uh, some some pens and uh, and some big A one sheets and stuff. And I was just like mapping out like manifestations and affirmations, and you know where I want to put my uh, myself, my business, my personal life, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's a good exercise to do, particularly after just getting married, and you have all this like you know incredible dopamine high of like seeing everyone, and then all of a sudden you're on your own. I think it's a really really cool activity and, and something I want to do at least uh once a year um but i wish i did this exercise now dude the uh the, the three straight framework of, of figuring out my timeline <laughs> <laughs>
it's not too late. It's not too late. And, and you know, you're, you're coming to the book launch on the 8th of December, right? And look, it's, it's a lifelong journey. I think what, what I will say to that is it's never too late. And things always come up. Like I've got a stack of stories, right? I've got like these cards of stories that I haven't unpacked. And I don't even know if they're relevant or not, but that's beside the point. You know, and I don't know if you notice, if you go back, if you go back and listen to the start of this interview, when you asked me to introduce myself, I just used that three-step framework, right? You know, I'm an I'm a eight-year-old kid. I'm a six-year-old kid. I'm in a classroom. I'm being bullied. Um, it was really tough, but this is what I learned, right? It, it, and and it, people think that I'm a natural storyteller. And up to a certain point, I'm very comfortable on stage because I hated being in the classroom. So my escape was stage. My mom was a school teacher for 35 years and she put up school plays and I used to be like a bush or like a lamppost on stage from like the age of four, you know? And I was always been comfortable on stage because I wasn't judging my ability to read. I wasn't judging my ability to read out loud or, or spell uh, or do maths. But for some reason, I was at home on stage. And so I do have a natural ability to feel very comfortable uh, on stage. But what I've learned is that you can, anyone can learn this it, it, and, and, and wherever you are is fine. It's perfect. And you're going to get better at sharing your story. And by the way, one of my clients said this sentence that I totally coined now, I've stolen it. It will sharpen as you share, you know, your version now of how you talk about how you started the doctor's kitchen, oh, no yeah. doubt is yeah, very yeah. different than 2012 or 2015. That's uh yeah, no, uh, it's, it's completely, um, it's, it's, it's refined. It's, um, you know, it, it's still the same story, obviously, but it's just the delivery, the punctuations, uh, the succinctness or the length of it, if it needs to be, um, the depth, the, the sort of uh, emotional uh, elements to it. Um, I've got better, actually, at, at diving into more of the sort of vulnerabilities of, of that story mm. and, and future stories as well. You know, it's uh, that like... What was scary about it? I think I, th I don't want to put you on the spot. No, 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 and, that's you know, all right. But what, what, what did you find most scary about diving a little bit more into that side of the story? Because I think one of the things that you are a sort of inadvertently taught um, through both experience and also sort of the, the methodologies within medical school is to be that sort of authority figure. And I think we've got better at becoming more partners in health with patients rather than the dictators. But there is still that sort of authoritarian vibe to what we trust me. I'm a doctor. Exactly. Yeah. There, there's the undertone. Yeah. Um, and when you become a patient, all of a sudden that carpet is ripped off uh, from beneath your feet and you know, it, it's a vulnerable position to be in. And it's something that I don't wish upon anyone, but it certainly was helpful for me. It, and, and something I look back on with immense gratitude, because if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't really know what it's like. Um, and I think that that time in my life was very scary because there was a lot of indecision. Uh, I was going, uh, I wouldn't say I was going against medical advice, but I certainly wasn't going, you know, according to what most conventional yeah, well, medics would have. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was mm -hmm. unconventional uh, <laughs> to coin the, your podcast title, but you know, it's, um, it, 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 it was a, a scary time in my life, but it, also like talking about that openly uh, in the context of uh, a, a medical community, which is very sort of, 
uh, guideline driven. It's it's you know for for, for very good reasons. Mm. We are evidence based. Mm. Um, you know that there isn't as much no opinion. Is there? Yeah, yeah there, there, there isn't as much sort of flex in that uh, in that community for sort of going you know outside the norm. Um, I think we're getting better at that, but yeah, that was certainly uh, c- certain elements of that were emotional and and uh, and scary for sure. I bet. Yeah, I bet. And and look, and I, and I just want to acknowledge you for for sharing your story and for going down that path because uh, you know for people like me who are outside the medical world who don't really understand that industry, like my my partner, she went down that road of you know psychology at uni, then neuroscience at Oxford, and was going to do a PhD in in neuroscience and um, decided that she wanted to quit the labs to go and, and, and do something else in the end. But what she, what she told me is that you're not, you're taught to not have an, an opinion that isn't based on facts and peer reviewed data and all this stuff. And so people come out of the medical world are riddled with imposter syndrome. You know, what, what I found is that people find it really difficult to stand out. There's a few of you who managed to come out and really, you know, stand out and you're making ripple waves. And I think it's amazing. I think I wish there were more, but I don't want to underestimate, you know, the effort that it must have taken for you to come out and say, yeah, I think there's another way. <laughs> and I think having four hours of teaching about a diet and the impact on health in like a seven year degree doesn't scream like this is right. Yeah. So, you know, on behalf of everyone who kind of follows you and is inspired by what you do, it's no small feats and it takes tremendous courage. And, and I'm grateful that you did that. Thanks, man. No, I appreciate it. And I think, you know, it's funny when you, when you sit with that story, as you've eloquently de- described on this pod, it, you, you're sort of blunted to it as well. And um, sometimes I feel like, you know, there's space to go even deeper. I mean, I have a lot of beliefs around sure. Ayurveda and traditional medicine. I think psychology, um, the impact of um, uh, trauma is hugely, hugely, um, uh, in, uh, you know, um, responsible for um, a number of the ailments that we see within primary care, secondary care. Um, but there isn't a, a, as much sort of so, solid evidence around that. And so it makes it quite difficult for a person in my position who wants to maintain credibility to actually talk about these different elements. But I do it in sort of like a nuanced way. Like we, we've had... Uh, Dr. David Hamilton uh, on the pod um, talking about alternative medicine, complementary therapy. He comes across, um, mm. he, he looks at everything through a scientific lens because he used to work in, in pharma himself. He's a, you know, a, a trained scientist. Okay. Um, so I love having those kind of discussions and, and like veering on the edge of what might be acceptable uh, within the medical community. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, you know, just putting mm. myself out of that comfort zone, I think is, um, is, is a good sort of uh, strategy. Well I, well, I think also having your curiosity hat on. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think there's, I think there, I think there's a, there's an element of humility, which you bring to the table, which is we may not have all the answers yet and everything might not make sense right now. We might not have the data to back up, but this makes sense or, or I could see how, you know, Someone might tell you, like, Ruby, there's no empirical evidence that trauma causes some form of physical illness in the body or could spark a food eating disorder or whatever, right? And you might be cool. There might not be empirical evidence, but it seems strange that, you know, a lot of the patients I work with for obesity, I'm not saying this is the case, by the way, but, you know, imagine you'd be like, 
a common thread that I found a lot of my patients who have first obesity is they've had some form of neglect or abuse as kids. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't, I can't put my finger on it. I'm just, and, and I think it's almost like that's how everything starts, mm. like a kind of assumption or a theory. And what I'm hearing you say is that you're chasing your curiosities without being too rigid about them being the empirical truth mm. for everyone. But you're going, there's, it's pulling me. Like you've got this, like this field of curiosity that's putting you to going, there might be something else here that we're not quite seeing. And I think that's exciting. I think it's scary and courageous to go so, but I think if you put it under the hat of curiosity, it makes it less kind of, I am now shifting my entire like belief <laughs> yeah. system around this new alternative medicine and everything else is big farmers terrible. You know, it's no, it's like it's nuanced. I think we've lost the ability of being nuanced as a society. You know, I think we're so divided and that's a whole other pod conversation, but it's uh I think it's I think it's needed at pushing boundaries because if we don't do that, then we don't break through old molds or old belief systems that might be preventing us from, you know, becoming better humans. Yeah, absolutely. And talking of pushing boundaries, uh, man, I'm super excited about this book and the impact it's already had on me uh, in this uh, brief conversation, but also you know the uh, hopefully tens, hundreds of thousands, or maybe even millions of people who will read it as well. So. Uh, looking forward to um, the launch uh, and doing a little spiel whilst I'm there, being vulnerable on stage. Yes. Uh, I basically, probably you're listening to this, I've emotionally blackmailed you <laughs> into saying a few words on the night with a few other my friends and guests on the podcast. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, that, that'll be the 8th of December. The, but the books, the book, I don't know when this is, the book, the pod is coming out, but yeah, the book's available um, to pre-order on any any platform that you look for. Just type in Glow in the Dark, Mark Roost. Um, coming up with a shet and yeah, it's a labor of love. I'll say that. And it sounds really um, pretentious to say this, but I really believe in this book and I really love this book. And I know it sounds so weird because I'm usually the kind of person that says, Rupi, no, I mean, it's okay. No, it's fine. No, it's, <laughs> I feel like this book could do some really good in the world at the moment, which is around just accepting ourselves a little bit more. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you this, and, and maybe I'll finish with this really quick point. When politicians mess up in a very public way and then get fired or have to resign and all these memes come up and we can all point figures and all this stuff. And I get it. Like there's a part of me that also laughs and the part of me that also engaged, but there's another part of me that goes dehumanizing each other doesn't help on the long run. And, and I feel what we could do a little bit more of again is seeing that we also have some stories that might be difficult to own and by avoiding rejecting them, we can accept others. And, and, and if you want to hear like a deep message to fall off on is this is if you want to start accepting your own story, start accepting others a little bit more and, and see if you've got judgment on when people open up about things that might be difficult for them to share. And that, that might be one of the first ports of call for yourself is to kind of go, what is this a mirror for me to accept myself more you know what can i lean into this question to 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 accept because ultimately this is the this is the tip that helped me through this whole book writing as i because you i mean you've written how, how many cookbooks have you written now four four oh my god i don't know how you put yourself through that <laughs> i mean honest, honestly people listening to this you, if you haven't written a book you'd have no idea like how emotionally stressful and draining it is but the one question that that really helped me and i've given this to friends and, and clients, it's how can I love myself more as I go through this process, which I cringe even saying that out loud. People who can't see my face, I'm, I'm like just sucked on a lemon right now. 
Um, <laughs> but it's true. Like if you can love, if you can learn how to love yourself more through this process of you owning and unpacking and sharing your story, then everything else will be gravy. Appreciate that, man. And uh, listen, uh, I'm so glad you spent the time to to jump on the pod, share some wisdom. Uh, we're homies. Uh, I look forward to seeing you very soon and uh, and supporting you on, the, on your next steps, man. Um, you've been a, a massive uh, source of support for me. So uh, I'm so thankful to, to have you and your wisdom in my life, man. So appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. Do check out Mark LaRost's book, Glow in the Dark. And you can also check out the links to all the different things that we talked about in the show notes on thedoctorskitchen.com. I will see you here next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.